All right, how we doing? Doing good? Good, glad you're fired up, man. I was fired up after that worship service. I was backstage, even doing church news, always listen to worship music before I get out here, get my jam on back there. And uh, that's for real, you can ask my kids. I embarrass them all the time as we're pulling into school. I just like to turn the music up loud and dance, man. I mean, sue me, all right? Um, you're like, what's going on? Uh, I've been preaching two weeks, and so I'm very, very excited to be back. Uh, I've been in Africa the last couple weekends, and uh, we had two of our pastors preach. Yeah, sure, you can clap for that, that's awesome. Um, while you're clapping, Pastor Chad and Pastor David did a great job, didn't they? Yeah, give it up, give it up for them. Yeah. Um, anyway, I was saying that because I was backstage dancing and I got water all over my glasses and uh, I was trying to wipe them off before I got out here. So there we go. But yes, I was in Africa the last couple of weeks. We took a team uh, there. We, this is our second time to go, me personally, but our church goes a couple of times a year uh, with our relationship with Serve International going and planting churches and partnering with Serve to feed people. Also the House of Hope Orphanage, which uh, several of you sponsor kids there. So it was a great, great time to be there. And probably one of the coolest things about the experience was Two Sundays ago now, so two weeks ago, when Pastor Chad spoke, we got to visit one of the churches that we helped plant through Serve, uh, Revolution Church Kakiring, which is a village just outside of Lodwar, it's the northwest region of Kenya. And so we got to go to service there, and, and their service is just amazing, singing in Swahili and dancing, and they have choirs come in, and I mean, there's a lot of singing and dancing, and, and we're trying to sing and dance and trying to hang, and, and you know, we get exhausted, and we've got three songs here. They just go on and on and on, and then they looked at us and like, hey, did y'all bring a choir? And we're like all looking at each other, and we're like, we don't really do choirs at Revolution Church Can, and um, but we're going to sing with you, and we're going to be excited, and so we were dancing, and people that, that you're like, you probably shouldn't be dancing, but in Africa good school. And it just that worship service was just amazing, man. It was just unbelievable. And Pastor Jackson, who pastors there, is actually the pastor that we're working with as well to plant other churches because this cat would just show up everywhere Serve went to these different villages. He'd walk literally overnight to come and be there as a part of it. So Serve bought him a motorcycle. Now he just rides around on a motorcycle, training up pastors, planting churches. It's awesome. I would highly recommend if you get a chance to go to go because it is really, really cool to see what God is doing. But while we were there, Pastor Jackson came and, and he's a little bit taller than me and just, I mean, the dude, he's just awesome, man. I, I, when I grow up, I wanna be like him. And he gave me this gift that I wanna show to you. And after the service was over, he had somebody go grab it. This is actually, you may be wondering what this is. This is actually a stool that the men sit on. Yeah, that's what I said, right? It, uh, it's not very tall, as you can notice. And, but it was such a big deal after service was over. He gave this to me, and he had somebody carve this out and give it to me. And he said, now you are a Takana elder. Takana is the region there. Kind of think county is the way that we think here. And, and so I felt so amazing. I mean, literally, it's one of the best gifts I've ever received and then we would go out to other villages and I would take this with me and I would, because the men sit on one side, the women and the children sit on the other side. And so legit, straight up, I got down and sat on this thing. And it's, I mean, it's crazy. I'm not going to do it for you, but uh, it's, uh, <laughs> I'm telling you, man, I'm 40 and got bad knees. I don't want to tear something up here like, you know, <laughs> preaching and tearing ACL. But straight up, I mean, literally, I mean, you, I mean, you can just imagine how down low you got to get to that. And, and what I would do is I would kind of like crab walk first and then stick it underneath <laughs> And then, then sit down, which is really an, a strange thing because I don't normally make this motion in front of humans, right? And so um, it, it, was, uh, 
It was a lot of fun, man. And we went to, we went to another village, we went to several villages and, and did feeding programs. Another one gave me another, uh, another one of these. But as you can tell, the thing that I really loved about this one, A, it was sturdy and B, it was big. You see how it's like curved there? I think Pastor Jackson told him, like, he big. And uh, so make sure it's, and so, I mean, it fits perfectly, man. I'm, I'm for real. And the other one is literally about like, you know, that big and it's perfect for my wife. And, um, and so it was just a, an amazing time. And I can't wait to tell you more about it over the next couple months. But again, just thank you for, for believing in the vision of multiplying because it's literally happening all over the planet. And it's amazing to get to worship with people that you don't even understand their language. You don't even understand everything that they're saying or doing, although you pick up some words. Uh, and I'll actually get into this more into the sermon in a little bit, but just their expressiveness, just how amazing it was. I mean, amen in any language is amen. And, and, and so to be a part of that was just unbelievable. And so thank you as a church for, for being generous and supporting that because you may not know not only do we plant the churches, but we help support those pastors on a monthly basis. And so because of that, the gospel is going out through that region, which is in dire need, not only of the gospel, but of food and water. And so that's why it's such a great partnership with Serve to come alongside them and help do not only feed, not only give water, but obviously give the gospel as well, because the gospel is our greatest need. And that is why we're going through the book of Romans, because the book of Romans describes the gospel. In fact, over the last several weeks, we've been talking about just the intro, just the intro to the book in chapter one, and we're going to pick right up where we left off. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter one. My primary text today is Romans 18 through 25, but I'm going to back up and hit verse 16 and 17 as well. That's where David preached last week, because they all connect together, because really, verses one through 15 is the intro, and then Paul is going to talk about his eagerness to preach the gospel. And then from 16 on, you're going to get a description of what that gospel is, all right? So as always, before we jump into the text, let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Father, we want to always stop and acknowledge our need, not only in song, uh, God, we sing out to you, but, but we worship you through the reading of your word. And so we ask that you would bless not only the preaching of the word today, but the hearing of it. Uh, and God, I pray that it would have its intended effect on us, and my, myself included, God, even though I've, I've preached this, uh, but help it have its intended effect in my life and all of our lives. And we know that without your Holy Spirit, we can't hear. We don't have ears to hear. So give us ears to hear, God. Help us to understand why these texts are so important for us, so critical for us to understand what the gospel is. And so God, I pray as we open your word that you would bless it. in Jesus' name. Amen. So in chapter one, verse 16 and 17, let's start there, even though, like I said, David preached it last week, because it's key to understanding verses 18 through 25. And so verse 16 and 17 says this, Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So belief is such a key component to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So in verse 17, Paul says that in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And the gospel reveals that in that what he's saying is the rightness or how to be made right with God is revealed in the gospel and how you're made right with God is through faith. 
And you would fully expect the Apostle Paul to go right into the next section talking about how we're justified by faith. But Paul doesn't do that. What's interesting to me is he's going to talk from verses 18 of chapter 1 until verse 20 of chapter 3 about something else other than the righteousness of God being revealed in faith. And so he's not going to talk about in this next section about how we're justified by faith. He is going to pick that up, though, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. And so we'll get into that. And interestingly enough, in chapter uh, 3, verse 21, is the section of Scripture we're going to talk about on Easter. And so as I was studying it this week, it just amazed me that between now and Easter, we're going to talk about this section. And then on Easter, we'll get to verse 21 of chapter 3. And in that whole section is how we're made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's a great Easter text to talk about. But between now and then, we got seven weeks to deal with this next section. But this section is a section that most people don't want to talk about. In fact, most people would just skip this section and move right on to chapter 3, verse 21, because he's talking about faith. And who doesn't want to talk about faith? That's great. But the righteousness of God is not the only thing that the gospel reveals. It's one of two things that the gospel reveals. The second thing he says that the gospel reveals is in verse 18. So let's look at that. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed. Same word as verse 17. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now this sentence starts with the word for just like verse 16 and verse 17 does. And every new sentence is going to start with the word for because it's one continuation. It's one conjunction after another. They're all connected together. And so the gospel first reveals the righteousness of God, but the second thing that it reveals is the wrath of God. But nobody wants to talk about the wrath of God. In fact, when I was typing up my sermon notes this week, I typed in the wrath of God, and I kid you not, my computer changed the word wrath to the word weather. (laughs) The weather of God, which I thought was quite funny because you see the wrath of God in the weather. Right? When we left, we were gone for two weeks. And I mean, Kenya, right where we're at, it's right off the equator. So it doesn't rain much. It's sunny a lot. And then we came back and I was like, dude, it rained for two straight weeks. I'm like, we got sun for two straight weeks. And so I'm kind of, you know, looking forward to a little bit of rain. But now you're here a little bit of rain. You're like, I would really love to go back and get a little bit of sun. Right? Because the wrath of God is revealed in the weather. As Romans 8 tells us, the creation itself was subjected to the wrath of God. And so even all the things that we see in nature are an example of something is wrong. But we don't like to talk about the wrath. We'll talk about the weather. We don't like to talk about the wrath of God. In fact, you're probably not going to hear any worship songs like, come on, everybody stand. Let's sing about the wrath of God. (laughs) And sadly, to be honest, sadly, you're probably not going to hear any sermons about it either. One of the most famous sermons that had to do with the wrath of God back in the day when we were in school, even in, in, you know, just regular schools, we would look at one of the greatest sermons ever written. It's called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. That sermon was one of the key things that led to the Great Awakening. So maybe one of the reasons why we're not experiencing revival and awakening in our country is because we quit talking about wrath. 
We, get, we quit talking about judgment. And I know this is one of those sermons you're like, dang it, I knew we shouldn't have come to church today. Why couldn't this be time change? And then I had an excuse. What's next week? And we're still gonna be talking about wrath. We got six weeks, seven weeks to talk about this until we get to chapter three, verse 21. But I'm telling you, you can't understand the good news of the gospel without first understanding the bad news. You gotta understand the bad news or the good news isn't any good. And see, this is where we misunderstand the wrath of God. We think that, oh, I don't like thinking about God as being angry. You know, I like to think about God as love, right? I mean, that's what the Bible says, right? God is love. Yes, God is love. But God also doesn't just love, he hates. He hates sin. He has wrath, anger. Literally, this word here, wrath, is the Greek word orge. I'll let you figure out what English word we get from that. In fact, we'll talk more about that next week, unfortunately. But here's the point. The point is simply this. The word means passion or arousal. And so the idea is there is something that is arising or arousing God's wrath or anger. There is something that is making him mad. But we are just simply not comfortable talking about God being angry. But it's important to understand that if God is not angry, if he doesn't hate evil, then he can't be loving. And what does he hate? What is he angry about? Paul tells us. The wrath of God from heaven, that word from is a preposition of source, which means it's coming from God. It's divine, and it's against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That word against is preposition of location, so it means it's coming to us who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. There it is. The thing that God is angry about is he is angry that mankind suppresses the truth about him. The truth about him, who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth, Paul says. And literally that word suppress, again, you think about a spring or a coil. It's, it's the idea of pressing down, suppressing down or repressing it. It's something that is working against you, but you're working against it to try to press it down, press it down, press it down. And literally the idea is you're trying to hold it down or put it in a box. You're trying to get rid of it. But what is this truth? It's the truth, not just truth in general, but it's truth about God. Look at the next few verses, verse 19. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What can be known about God? So this truth that we suppress, all mankind suppresses, is the truth about God. The truth about who God is and what God has done. And he has made it plain to us. And this word here, plain, is the Greek word phaneros. It means to show or reveal. That's the idea of it. And what's interesting is how we can know that there is a God is because he says God has made it plain to us. God has shown us. And that word there shown is the exact same word of making it plain, just in verbal form, because he's saying God has phane road. He has showed you. And so therefore it's plain. Well, how has God shown you the truth about who he is? Look at the next two verses. For his invisible attributes 
namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, without excuse. How can you know? You can see in what he made. You can see in what he made. Now here's what's so interesting. Anything that you can see that an artist made, we call art. And when you see art, I mean, we typically think of art as a painting, but art in just a painting, there's all different kinds of forms of art. But when you see an art, a piece of art, whatever it is, it's a picture, maybe it's a movie. We have all these award shows where we celebrate people and their artistic talents. But when somebody creates something, you see their art, it presupposes, if you're looking at art, it presupposes that there is a what? An artist, right? There's a creator. And so when you see something, you can logically perceive what Paul's saying here in your mind that, yeah, that's something that you're seeing was created. It didn't get there by accident. We're not celebrating this paint that just happened to fly onto this canvas, right? Somebody thought it out. Somebody created it. And so if they created it, therefore, there is a creator. What's interesting is we take that same logical conclusion when it comes to the creation and throw it out the window. Because I don't know if you realize that every time you see an animal, every time you see a human, every time you see a sunset, every time you see a sunrise, every time you see a mountain, every time you see a wave, every time you see a tree or a leaf or whatever it is, you're looking at art. And you're looking at art. That's why when you see a sunrise or you see a sunset, something inside of you connects with that. It feels transcendent, doesn't it? Like beauty is something that we're just made to take in. We just take in beauty. And when we see it, we can't help but adore it. We can't help but like, wow, right? And what Paul is saying is you can see all that that God made and deduce or perceive in your mind that if all that is art, then there must be an artist. If all that is created, then there must be a creator. But what's interesting in our world today, because people suppress the truth about who God is, we talk about intelligent design versus science. But you need to understand something about science. Science is simply empirical evidence. What that means is simply this. The empirical method is I observe, I observe something and then I make a hypothesis. Remember that in middle school and high school? Like you observe an experiment, you have a controlled environment, you make something happen. You're like, well, if this happens, then this is going to happen. And you observe that. And if you observe that, you make a hypothesis about something. The problem is none of us were there during creation. And so we couldn't observe it. And so therefore, everybody's hypothesizing about what happened then and how we got here. But here's what Paul's saying. The hypothesis is really easy. If you see something that's created, you don't in your mind think automatically, well, that got there by chance. <laughs> right? When you pull into this building or Jasper or any, when you go into your house and you see that sticks of wood were formed in a certain way to make a shape and an angle because water tends to run off better like that. And then all these walls are there and plumbing is there and electrical is there. You automatically think some architect drew this out and then somebody built it together. 
You naturally deduce that, and then you pay that somebody, right? That's how the world works. And Paul's saying, well, if that is true about anything that you see, then why would the same not be true about what God does? Art implies artist. Design implies designer. And you can simply observe that is what Paul's saying. But that's not really all that God is mad about. Look at the next verse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Literally, that word for fool in the Greek is where we get our English word moron. (laughs) Morons. And, now listen to this, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the real sin that God is angry about is that we suppressed the truth about a creator, about God, and not just that we suppressed it, but we exchanged it. We didn't give God the honor and glory he was due. And that word, their honor, is literally the Greek word doxa. And and you're gonna see it again. He says, exchange the glory of God for these created things. Exchanged it, the glory. So that word, the same word, and and in the Hebrew idea, the word glory means weightiness. And so what the Bible is getting at, there is nothing or no one more glorious than God. He's the weightiest being on the planet. And this is why when Isaiah sees him in the temple in Isaiah chapter six, when God shows up, Isaiah falls down. Why? Because God crushed him. Because the heavier thing wins. Every time. And and speaking of that, aren't you glad that you aren't winning against your chair right now? You know what I mean by that? Aren't you glad that somebody designed a chair and did load tests on it so that it is able to hold you up? So the chair, when it comes to holding weight, is more glorious than your weight. And praise God, that way, when you sat in it, it didn't go... And then you felt embarrassed and left, right? It doesn't matter how big you are. You crush a chair, you're embarrassed. You can be the smallest girl under 100 pounds, sit in a chair, and then feel like Godzilla if you crush it. (laughs) Right? This is why at at first, when I first got this, I was a little skeptical. I'm like, did y'all do a load test on this sucker? (laughs) But the good news is I know enough about math and engineering is this is a pretty small trunk. If it were taller, then it would need a lot more support to it. So since it's pretty short and it's pretty thick, I banked on the fact that it was more glorious than me in weight. And praise God, it hasn't broken yet, right? But here's what Paul's saying. God is the weightiest being on the planet. Why? Because he exists outside the planet. There's no one or nothing more glorious or weighty than God. And we can see the weightiness of God. We can see the glory of God when we see what he created. And if God created the wind and the waves and the mountains and the trees, how much more powerful is he? 
And so what Paul is saying is we didn't honor him. We suppress that, which is really a psychological term to talking about. We repress that because if he is an all powerful God, then he has the right to command us. But we don't like that. We don't want somebody to command us. So we suppress it down. We repress it down and then we exchange it which is so interesting. Freud himself, who's really kind of the father of modern psychology said, this is why human beings all over the planet are religious. It's because they're so afraid of nature that they, they can't reason with nature. They can't reason with the storm. They can't reason with, you know, a hurricane or a tornado. And so therefore they have to create a God who's above that. And if they appease that God, then maybe that God can stop those things from happening. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is Jesus. There's a story in the gospels that's told by several people that Jesus was on a boat with the, his disciples in the Sea of Galilee and all of a sudden a storm rises up and Jesus is asleep in the bottom of it and his disciples are freaking out. They're like, hey Jesus, don't you care? We're about to die. And Jesus walks up after they wake him up and he goes, y'all have little faith. Hey waves, y'all settle down. And then, and then the Bible says, they said, who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. And then it says this, they were terrified. See, the problem with Freud's theory of we create a God because we're scared of nature is we would never create a God who's more fearful than nature. We would never create that God. That would be psychological un, psychologically untenable. But that is what Paul is saying is the God who's always existed, exists outside of time and space and everything that you see, he created and you can deduce that if he created that, he's more powerful. He's more glorious. He's more weightiest than anything that he created. And so what we do is, again, we don't like that. So we suppress it, we repress it, and we exchange that truth for a lie, which is where he goes next. Look at verse 24 and 25. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. We'll get more into that next week. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, here's the deal. The reason why God is upset, wrathful, angry is because we should have been able to see from his creation that there was a creator and honor him, give glory to him. But if there is a creator, then that means he has all authority to command his creation. And we don't like that. So we suppress it and we exchange that truth for a lie. My friends, we have a worship problem. The question is not if you worship. You're a worshiper. The question is simply what or who are you worshiping? So the problem that God is so upset about is we're worshiping the things that he created instead of the creator. Now here's what happens. And, and, and to some level, I get it because the things that he created have glory, right? I mean, the Bible says 
We are created in the image or in the likeness of God. And so when you see all of God's creation and you see that it's grand, it's vast, it's amazing. I mean, I was just in Africa and watching the sunset, watching the sunrise, looking at the amazing animals that he created, looking at the elephants, looking at the lions and the leopards. And we saw a black rhino, which is so rare. Sorry about that, Zip. And and, and so we see all these amazing things that he created and they are glorious. But what happened is we started worshiping all those things instead of the one who is more glorious, who created those things. Now we look at that, you know, verse 23 says they exchanged it and started worshiping creeping things and animals. You know, in our 21st century Western enlightened mind, we're like, why in the world would you, would you worship an animal? You know, there are religions in the world that are more animistic, which means they have more animal, you know, animistic is they have animals of it's a part of their worship. And so in some religions, cows are really sacred and some religions, elephants and different things. And especially in Eastern religions, you see all these animals and the year of different animals. The reason is, is because they look at all that stuff and it's glorious and it is, but we look at that and we think, why would you worship a creature like that. But you know what Paul says? You and I do the same thing. We just don't worship the elephant. We worship what we see in the mirror, which is a creature as well. It's what he said. For images, that word their image is the Greek word icon. We were created in the image of God and we worship the image resembling mortal man. And so you may think it's crazy that somebody worships an elephant, but Paul says it's just as crazy that you worship yourself. And we talk about glory all the time, don't we? That's one of God's words. That's one of the Bible's words. But we talk about glory in our human achievements. I mean, we create award shows just to glory the person who created something, right? And we create trophies and we create Super Bowls so that we can glorify in the greatest of all time. Right? We call them the goats. And you're like, oh, you're the goat. What in the world is a goat? (laughs) Right? You're like, oh, Tom Brady is the goat because he's won six Super Bowls. He's the greatest of all time. He's got glory. You know how crazy that is? You got got to imagine. Just, just, Just go with me here. That God's up in heaven and he's going, whoa. You mean he got a pigskin across a white line? Whoa! Dang, that, that dude is the goat. For real? I mean, we are glory hounds, aren't we? We'll create things, we'll invent things just to have glory because... We think that, man, if we can make these human achievements, we will get glory, we will get honor, we will get recognition. And I just got to wonder, God's up in heaven. He was like, oh, wow, a brown ball across a line. You guys are brilliant. (laughs) Never thought of that one. And we talk about glory when it comes to money, right? I, I talk about this often, gold. Where did God put gold? in the ground. And you got to wonder, God's like, oh, you got a lot of gold because it's shiny. 
and you got diamonds. I put that junk in the dirt, bro. You think that's glory? See, again, this is the problem. See, Paul tells us the problem is not, the problem is not that we don't worship. The problem is we worship the wrong things. And the things that we worship will not have glory forever. That's why Paul says, he says, blessed is the creator forever. How long is forever? You've seen Sandlot? It's forever. You think we're gonna be walking around heaven and be like, there's Tom Brady. No, I don't even know if he's gonna be there. If he hasn't trusted Jesus, he won't be. I don't care how many Super Bowls he wins. See, if you glory in the things that are temporary, the Bible says you're a moron. You're a moron. You're gonna worship your own strength. You're gonna worship your own abilities. You wanna know what happens to your strengths and abilities? Go visit your grandma in the nursing home. That's you. Feel great? And I'm not making fun of your grandma. Hear me saying, what I'm saying is your glory fades. But God's is forever. And Paul says, every single one of us have exchanged his glory and worshiped the creation instead of the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I love it because Paul interrupts his own letter to throw in a hallelujah, to throw in an amen. He can't help himself. He's just writing it, and he's like, the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. And you want to know what the Greek word for amen is? Amen. That, for real, that is the Greek word. You didn't even know it. You know Greek. Now you know it. Literally, how you spell amen in Greek is A-M-E-N. And what it means is this is true. This is true. Again, I was referencing this earlier. I love being in Africa because in African uh, culture, it's very celebratory. It's very dancing. And, and I'll never forget when we went last year, we started going out to these villages and a pastor would be talking and people would be singing. Everybody else wasn't sitting there passively. They were engaging in the conversation and they'd be going, eh, ah, amen. I'm like, I caught the amen. What's the S? And then I asked one of our guys, Thomas, who is Kenyan, and he goes, oh, they're responding back to what they're saying. They're affirming it. They're saying, eh, because in Swahili language, it's almost like you're finishing each other's sentences. You're, it's a very you know, dialogue-driven kind of language, and so they're always involved with the conversation. And so this time, since you know, kind of knowing that, I go into these villages, and I don't know what the mess that they're saying, but I can hear an eh and an amen, and I can kind of figure out the cadence and the rhythm to it because, you know, I think I'm half African. And so when we get into those things, and they're like, eh, I'm like, eh, amen. Right, I'm just getting along with it, right? I don't know what they're saying, or eh, or amen. It may not be good, but if they did it, I figure I can do it. But here's what's amazing. It, 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 it makes the whole service come alive because I'm engaging in it. And I love that Paul is here writing scriptures and they're coming alive to him as he's writing them to the point where he's got to be like, eh, amen. A to the men. 
So please feel free, Canton and Jasper, give me some A's, give me some S, give me some amens as we're going through the word of God and we'll figure out the rhythm together. I know most of us are white, but you'll figure it out, all right? And so as we're in a worship service or whatever it is, don't be afraid to be expressive about this God that you're worshiping because if you thought that ribeye steak was good, how much better is the one who made it? Right? I mean, come on, somebody. We're not even fasting now, and so we can go have one. (laughs) Praise Jesus for chicken and Truett Kathy, right? Like, yes and amen. But if that was good, how much gooder or better is the one who made it? And so when we talk about, yes, thank you. When we talk about the wrath of God, you need to understand something that God is angry and wrathful when you and I exchange in worship the things that he made for something that is not as good as him. And this is what bugs me sometimes when people talk about, and I've said this before, when people are like, I don't like the God of the Old Testament because he's so angry. I really like the God of the New Testament. You think they're different gods, sucker? (laughs) And let me ask you a question. In which testament? Now you understand Jewish people wouldn't call it the Old Testament, they would just call it scriptures. In which testament, old or new, did God crucify his son? The new one, right? So don't tell me that God is not wrathful in the New Testament. And please, for the love of God, do not tell me that he wasn't loving in the Old Testament. Because when Abraham, right? The one who God plucked out in Genesis 12 after the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 when God scatters all the nations, he picks one to make a nation out of to tell all those nations that he just scatter. And he says, through you, I'm gonna bless you. You'll have children as much as the stars, which are the children of faith. We'll get into that in a few weeks. And then he says, hey, and this child that you just got, since you're 100 years old, go sacrifice him. And Abraham's like, huh? And so he goes up to the mountain and then God says, sacrifice him. And right before he's about to bring the knife down, God says, hold up. I got a substitute. You take the the ram in the thicket and you put him in the place of your son. And you know what that depicts? That God would bring down the wrath on his own son, not our son. So don't tell me God wasn't loving in the Old Testament. Don't tell me he's not wrathful in the New God is so angry with sin that he had to kill his son. Is there any, anything worse than that? But hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. God loved you so much that his son chose to be killed. See, on the cross, The knife came down on Jesus. And we are like Isaac, who got spared. But the knife had to come down because God is a just God. 
And in the gospel, his righteousness and his wrath is revealed. His righteousness and his wrath is revealed. In one act, he punished sin. And hear me, friends, you need to know this. If you do not trust in Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, then the wrath of God remains on you. And please, for a second, don't think the cartoons that Satan is the one who's gonna punish you in hell. No. Hell was created for Satan and he will be punished there. And if you don't trust God, you will be punished there along with him. And you will have no excuse because the Bible says you can plainly see with your eyes that there's a God. And so if today, if you'll quit suppressing that, quit exchanging that and worshiping something else other than the creator, then you too, with God, can have joy forever. Glory with God forever. So you wanna know why the wrath of God is so important for us to talk about? Because if you don't know the bad news, you'll never love the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So in the gospel, the wrath of God is revealed and in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And today, you and I can have a chance to re-exchange. See, the crazy thing is, is we exchange the glory of the immortal God for the created things. But yet God exchanged his son for us. So even though we sold him out, even though we exchanged him, he says, I love you too much, I'll exchange my son for you. And so there's some of you here today that you need to trust Jesus. And if you don't trust Jesus, the wrath of God will remain on you. But if you do trust Jesus, then the wrath of God will be poured out on Jesus in your place for your sin. And you can exchange back and receive in faith the grace of God. And I don't know about you, but I have never gotten over, and I pray that I never will, that Jesus exchanged himself for me. It was my sin that he was up there on that cross for. It was yours. I deserved that. But in grace, I didn't get it. And that's why you and I should be the most amen and joyful people on the planet if you're in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, 
thank you. Thank you that you're righteous. You are holy. And so therefore you couldn't let sin go unpunished. But thank you, God, that before we ever sinned, before Adam and Eve ever exchanged the truth about you for a lie, you had already put forth Christ as a substitute. And God, I know there are people right now listening that don't know Jesus. And I know it's politically incorrect to say that he's the only way, but I just don't care because there is no other way. No other God is coming to save. And so God, I pray for those that are still under your wrath right now and will justly receive punishment. I pray right now, God, you'd open their eyes to see the truth about who Jesus is and save them. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close. If you've never trusted Jesus, if you have never understood that he exchanged himself for you, because you exchanged the truth about God for a lie, If you've never trusted him, you can do that right now. Because Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So if you wanna trust Jesus right there where you are, nobody looking around or talking, if you wanna trust Jesus, pray with me. I'm gonna lead you in a confession. It goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent your son in my place for my sin. I ask you to save me. Forgive me. I am trusting in Jesus. To take my place. And I receive by faith his righteousness. Thank you for loving me. Again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you just prayed that for the very first time, very simply, you just, we just wanna know that. So would you just lift your hand up so we can see that? Just lift it up. Thank you. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. You walked in guilty, but you're leaving innocent, my friend. Leave it up just for a second. We've got men and women are gonna walk around, put a gift in your hand, and when they do, you can put it down. But then those of you like me who you may have trusted Jesus long before you came in today, I hope today you're reminded of exactly what it is that he did for you and that you will leave today more thankful. I know we all want God to do more things for us and he's a good dad, he wants to do them. 
but he's already solved our greatest need. He's already fixed our biggest problem. So please, 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 please do not think he doesn't love you. I don't understand why he does what he does, but Romans 8, 28 says he's working all things out for the good of those who love him. So I can trust him. If I can trust him with my eternity, I can trust him with my 70 or 80 years here on earth. God, help us to be thankful and grateful. Help us to never lose the joy of our salvation. The sheer joy that comes from knowing that because of Jesus, you're not mad at us anymore. That you judged him in our place. And so therefore, God, we get grace And help us to fully know and believe and understand that. Work that in every place of our life. Give us that joy. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.